Encounters with Awe. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. You're about to meet a lively, delightful, good-humored, I would say perfectly normal person. And yet, throughout her childhood and early adulthood, Erica Buist had high anxiety about death and dying. Abnormally high, I would say. Sometimes incapacitating. Even in her late 20s, whenever she saw her partner Dion descending a staircase, she would worry about him falling and breaking his neck. That's no way to live from day to day. What's more, Erica had never seen the deceased body of a friend or a family member. So how does somebody beset by both fear of dying and fear of the dead end up in a remote part of Indonesia where embalmed bodies are routinely kept right out in plain view of the living, hanging around the house for months or even years. You know you're not in Kansas anymore when you see something like this. This woman, who had been dead for four years, she had brand new clothes, and there were people running up to her, putting their phones in her dead face, because there's someone on FaceTime who wants to see her. And I saw this woman going, oh my God, hi! You know, she was so happy to see her again. Erica has given the way she looks at death a complete overhaul, and she thinks maybe you should too. She's actually amazingly persuasive on the subject not just of coming to terms with our mortality, but of practically celebrating it. Erica Buist is the author of This Party's Dead, Grief, Joy, and Spilled Rum at the World's Death Festivals, about to be released in paperback. To gain first-hand experience with these festivals, she needed to get out and about. So she traveled around the world to explore the astonishingly varied ways that people treat their dead. But first, where did her own abnormally high anxiety about death really begin? It's apparently very common for children of about five to suddenly declare that they're never going to die. That's apparently something a lot of children do. So I'm guessing it was that, that I suddenly declared that I was never going to die. And my father said, so sort of casually, like, yeah, of course you are. Everyone does. And I was quite baffled by that, mainly about the everyone dying. And then I said, well, you won't die, Daddy. And he said, well, of course I will. And then my sister and I just started wailing because that's what children do when you give them uh, when you give them something with which they have no resource to cope. And so the way he tried to calm us down was by explaining that it wasn't going to happen for years. You know, you're going to be an old lady. And that sort of calmed me down. And then he said, and anyway, at some point after that, the sun will die. And then everything will die. And nothing will exist. And I was just like, the sun will die? I got all this information in about 15 seconds. (laughs) I remember being so horrified by this. And then I just decided to stop thinking about it. Or at least I only thought about death every few hours after that. <laughs> well, uh, answer me this, if you would. After that traumatic revelation that death is a thing, uh, subsequent weeks, months, years, as a child, you, you, you very humorously said that you only thought about death every few hours after that. But in, in, really, I mean, level with me, did you suppress it? Did you try to put it in the back of your mind? Did you bracket it off? What did you do with it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely developed a level of health anxiety that I now realize is not okay. So, I mean, I also, I studied philosophy at university and I did my dissertation on death. Again, I thought this was very normal. (laughs) And it turns out it possibly wasn't. It mainly presented for me as death anxiety. Again, we all think we're the average, don't we? So, you know, when you you sort of say, yeah, you know what it's like when your partner's on the stairs and you think they're going to die and everyone says, what? (laughs) No, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, here I sit in the United States, and there you are in the UK, and we've got a few things in common. Some people think it's a language, but in terms of the way you were situated, was there any kind of support for your concerns, your anxiety, your worries in the UK? Is that a culture that confronts this? No, not at all. Not at all. Or I like to think it's getting better. In fact, one of the things that made me decide to write this book was when I saw what at first I thought was great news. It said it was about death cafes. 
you know, this movement where people are meeting up in cafes to have cake and tea and coffee and talk about death. And at first I thought, oh, that's so great that people are doing that now. And then I suddenly thought, wait a second, people meeting up to talk about death makes headlines in this country. That, and the only reason that seemed so strange to me was because I lived in Mexico, where it's spoken in a much more confronting, easy, almost flirtatious way. If I hadn't lived there, I don't think it would have struck me as odd. But that's, you know, that's what travel does. Mexico, you say. What took you to Mexico? I, I know you've been there a couple of times, extended stays, but tell us about this first time. So I graduated from university, and I didn't know what to do. And all I did know was that I wanted to learn Spanish. So I went to Mexico for about four months. And then while I was there, the financial crash happened. And my mom basically said, there's really no point coming home. There's no jobs. And being English in Mexico was absolutely great. They thought we were all Hugh Grant, basically. (laughs) (laughs) All I had to do was say I wasn't American. And people thought that was really exotic and sexy. So it was very easy to get work and everything. So I just stayed there for two years. So let let me tell you what you've left me thinking here. I I would think that two years should be plenty of time for anyone visiting Mexico to become familiar with their traditions surrounding death. You know, Day of the Dead, the brightly colored skulls, uh, painted up like skeletons, uh, flowers, marigolds everywhere at that time of year. So you knew that about Mexico. It's they don't tuck death away in the attic somewhere. It's out there in, in plain view. In plain view? I mean, I would have said plain view at the beginning. Now that I've been to death festivals where the corpse is actually present at the festival, I don't know how plain the view is, but at the time, everyone's familiar with the imagery, and it's very much about sort of almost laughing at, sort of flirting with death. You know, no other country has death as this kind of totemic cultural figure. Um, so that was really fascinating to me when I first, I think it was six weeks into my first time there and suddenly all these skulls were being put up everywhere. I was like, what on earth is going on? And it was, you know, and they told me very plainly, we are not afraid of death, which just blew my mind. I mean, I was there when swine flu started happening and I can certainly say that they're afraid of dying in a horrible way. But being afraid of dying is not quite the same as being afraid of death how you get there versus actually being there dead. Um, I I think I get the distinction you're making here. But where I want to take you now is back to England. After your stay in Mexico, you had already come to know a culture that at least seems, outwardly, seems to embrace death fearlessly, maybe even joyously. And you've gotten that exposure to their perspective. But now you're back in England and you still have your own personal anxiety about death, fearing for your partner when he comes downstairs and such. And then this really, truly dramatic thing does happen. A a man named Chris is situated to become your father-in-law. He's the father of your fiancé, Dion, at the time. Uh, You've got to tell that story because this is your your big confrontation, Uh, not just with the idea of death, but with actual death. There was this week where my partner, Dion, had emailed his dad and he usually replied quite quickly and he didn't reply and every single day I was saying has he replied yet has he replied yet and I just had this creeping sensation this creeping unease and it turns out that he had died and we only found out for sure when his I think it was his cleaner turned up and he wasn't answering the door the dog was barking there was papers all uncollected on the doorstep so Dion called and told me that, and I immediately, immediately knew he was dead. But of course, he went straight into denial. He was like, oh, he's probably just gone out and forgotten to tell anyone. So I had to say, you know, he could have like had a fall. You know, you really should go and check on him, which felt horrendous because I, I knew I was sending him to find a dead body. And then he called me, and he, he was dead. But the thing is, he'd been dead the entire time we'd been waiting for his email. He'd been dead for eight days. And so... That was extremely traumatic because, like I said, we don't we don't confront death here. We don't talk about it. Um, you know, we don't we don't even see an embalmed corpse. So to see 
a dead person after eight days of decay is actually quite frightening. That said, I didn't because Dion wouldn't let me go upstairs. He later told me that was a chivalry thing, <laughs> you know, like the, the lady must not see the, the corpse. Um, but honestly, there's a lot of other ways you can experience a body that's been dead for that long. Obviously, when the undertaker came to take them away, the smell just filled the air and it was, yeah, there's a lot of, there's lots of ways to have PTSD even if you don't uh, see something. So it was, an, it was an extremely traumatic day. It was a very bad Tuesday, I will say that. So if you have this baseline of high anxiety about death and then you discover the fact that somebody close to you is deceased and in the manner that you described, how, how do you even... Well, I'm, I'm going to be asking you about how you coped with that because you've already said that in England, getting together to talk about death in a death cafe maybe, you know, that's new things. So was there any ready-made support in society for you? Were there people waiting in the wings, you know, to help you in this crisis? No, there's not really a lot of support. People really didn't know what to say. You know, I was telling people about it, about what was essentially agoraphobia and extreme anxiety. And people were telling me it was normal. Oh, that's normal. Oh, you know, that's, that's completely normal. No, it wasn't. But they had nothing there was just nothing in anybody's arsenal to deal with that kind of problem. So they just grappled for just general, you know, they're there. So, yeah, it was quite tricky to navigate. And it was one of the things that made me write the book, the fact that there was so little. And I think we deny it in a way, you know, in a way even more than in the States. I mean, the practice of embalming is seen very much as a denial of death and decay, which it is. But we don't even do that because here, like for quite a lot of people, looking at a corpse on purpose at all is a strange thing to do. So yes, I would say we do have a lot in common. And if anything, we might be slightly more repressed, which we're very good at over here. From that event, you then tell the story of your choice. I'm going to call it a choice. You might have to qualify that. But your choice to confront death in a way that you'd never done it before by actually going out into the world and observing other cultures in other countries, other places to kind of do a... Was this an intellectual pursuit or was this something from deeper than just, uh, you know, the the brain? I, I like to think it was intellectual because, I mean, the bit that's being missed from this story right now is that I kind of had what might be termed a breakdown. I did, I did sort of suffer from agoraphobia and find myself stalking everyone online to check that they weren't also dead, which made total sense to me at the time. But it is a full-time job. I don't recommend it. And it, it was after I sort of fully realized what had become of me that I started thinking about Mexico. And I started thinking about people saying, you know, we're not afraid of death. And I just Googled death festivals around the world to see if there were any more. And there were loads and loads and loads. And I realized sort of we are actually the odd ones out here. And that's when my journalist brain kind of turned on. I went, wait, hang on, why? What's the difference between us? I remember the actual question that rang in my head was after I tried to go and buy a sandwich. I completely failed. I panicked. I threw the sandwich. I ran home. And I was sitting at my kitchen table thinking, why did all those people I knew in Mexico, why did they look at death and throw a party and I just threw a sandwich? Something's gone awry. Like, there's definitely a convergence here. And that's what I became obsessed with. So I told you I don't read reviews, but I am aware that some people have described it as, uh, you know, this woman was traveling to deal with her grief. I got to say, that is, that is not what I was doing. This is, that makes it sound like eat, pray, love with corpses, right? And I said, it, it wasn't. <laughs> because it was intellectual more than anything else. I just became, this is what a journalist's brain does. You become obsessed with one question and you have to answer it. Um, well, so, I, I'm going yeah. inter to interrupt you for just a second because humans are complex creatures and we're capable of operating at multiple levels. And yes, your journalistic brain can kick in, but there was grief. And if you weren't trying, in some, at some level, were you not also... I just want you to concede that you felt like you needed a hug. 
you know, probably. And it is very, very British of me to seek a hug in some kind of intellectual pursuit. <laughs> but possibly, yes, except it was, if anything, it was probably worse than that. It was probably in part a way to deal with the grief in the way that felt intellectual rather than specifically painful. So I suppose I'll cop to that. However, remember, this trip took me years. This was years of doing this kind of research. So if that's true, it's probably only really felt all through the first trip, which is to Mexico. In the others, there were moments of it. There were certainly emotional moments, but I was mostly just obsessed with this question. I mean, I also wouldn't want to put out the message that, hey, guys, don't worry. If you're bereaved, just just travel the world for many years. <laughs> you know, it's not really something I'd like to tell people is, is needed. You know, it's um, it's more I went, I went and got hit in the head by a corpse in Madagascar, so you don't have to. <laughs> that happened. I mean, that actually did happen. And, uh, well, hold on to that thought because we're going to want to play-by-play on that. We are visiting with Erica Buist, author of This Party's Dead, Grief, Joy, and Spilled Rum at the World's Death Festivals. I'm Marcus Smith, and you're listening to Constant Wonder. So now break this scene down for me a little bit more. Madagascar, you're there in the middle of this celebration. There's a corpse, and uh, your head just kind of got in the way of things? If I showed you the video, it would make perfect sense. But oh, there's video had... of this? Oh, yeah, yeah. I have an Instagram account called This Party's Dead where I uploaded so many videos. But, yes, I was in a crowd at a death festival called The uh, Turning of the Bones, and they would take the corpses out of the crypt rewrap them in a fresh shroud, then put them on their shoulders and dance around and everyone's drunk and everyone's dancing and happy and it was great. So someone uh, behind me picked up a corpse. The weight distribution was not quite what they thought and I just felt this funk in the back of my head. And they were like, whoops, sorry, you know, as if they just like accidentally bumped me on a train. And it was so funny to me because I thought, gosh, a few years ago I was sitting at my kitchen table and I had failed to buy a sandwich because I was so traumatized. And now I've been hit in the head by a corpse and it's fine. It's <laughs> just funny. <laughs> so I guess there was a journey. The journey that Erica is alluding to there is the emotional one. Uh, the emotions that followed her itinerary of traveling physically around the world Starting in Mexico, not a bad place to begin because Mexico is where she first saw death actually celebrated. And then she opts for a second stint in Mexico, this time landing in Michoacan. That's a place where they're practically obsessed with marigolds and the Day of the Dead celebrations in general. I mean, I have seen Coco, you've probably seen it too, who hasn't? But the word festive doesn't even begin to describe what goes on there. Absolutely. I mean, the marigolds, I mean, they start growing those months and months in advance. And it just absolutely carpets the place. And there's lots of explanation about why it's marigolds, but it is, you know, the flower of the dead. And remember, this used to be a month-long festival before the Spanish came and invaded and moved it to two days in November to try and pass it off as the, you know, the All Saints and All Souls Day festival. Um, This is a month-long festival. So they're essentially trying to cram in this enormous thing into two days because that's what colonizers make you do. But so for one thing, yes, the visual element of it is astonishing, probably stronger than anywhere else that I went. And yeah, you do, you go into these cemeteries and they're just completely carpeted with marigolds. And the reason for that is that the family are coming to visit, you know, so everything has to be perfect. You would make the preparation as special as you would if it was living relatives that you only see once a year. So, you know, they will put out their the favorite food and the favorite drink of their spirits. And, you know, some people even believe that the day afterwards, that even though the food remains, but it's been sucked of all the nutrients. So genuinely, they think those cookies have no calories the next day. Not everyone believes that literally, but a lot of them do. Um, so it was a very different experience being there kind of in this exploratory form. And also I was there bereaved as well. I was still in pretty strong grief. I mean, I 
can tell when I go back and read that chapter, I can tell sort of how scattered and disorganized my brain is at the time. Given the fact that you were bereaved, and this was right on the heels of what you had experienced with the death of Chris, did you go there this time to Mexico as a detached observer, or did you actually participate? Did you get into what people do so that you could kind of maybe experience what they do? Did you did you try to do that, or did it even just happen to you against your own will? Here's the thing. When somebody dies, you're actually dealing with two traumatic things. One is that you miss that person, that your love doesn't go anywhere. And the other is that you're dealing with mortality itself. So what a death festival does, first of all, is that it gives you this opportunity to make yourself useful and to pour them a drink or get them their favorite food. You know, it essentially gives your love somewhere to go. And that's a common epithet we hear of, grief is love with nowhere to go. You know, this wise, sad little phrase and you know in these places like well give it somewhere to go then (laughs) pour them a drink talk to them did you do that i did yes i did so it was right at the end of the festival where i thought right i haven't done this properly yet i'm sad that i can't believe it but maybe i should give it a go so i did what i imagine was a very awkward looking scene where i went into where the shrine was um and i put a little picture of chris on there with everyone else's dead loved ones and I sort of <laughs> I sort of talked to him now this I'm, I'm not I'm not a very godly person right I'm not very spiritual so I really am just talking to a photo I feel so stupid and then I was like oh oh I better go and get you a jelly bean or something so I went and I got him a little sweet and I talked to him for a second and then I remember so clearly how I heard bells strike midnight and then I went over and I had a text from my partner who told me that um, he booked something for my birthday. And I put that in my calendar. And the reason that was significant is because I hadn't used calendars since he died. Because about a week after Chris died, my calendar pinged this reminder saying, birthday dinner with Chris. And that really annoyed me. I was just like, right, well, calendars just just tease you. I'm just going to switch it off. Because it was kind of that reacting angrily to that that idea of, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. So I had had this haphazard year of just running around, forgetting things. And as soon as I did this, I went and I just, without even thinking, put something in my calendar. So it's almost like I'd made a little bit of space in my heart or my brain just by having that moment where I talked to him. So... Even though I didn't believe, just by doing that, it seemed to do something for me. It seemed to work. And I thought, this is why people are doing it. You know, if grief is love with nowhere to go. And similarly, when someone dies, you're given a death reminder. You know, you're given a reminder of your own mortality, which is very frightening. So having this time and space every year to kind of make room for that in your head, it can only be healthy. In Mexico, which we're going to leave in just a moment here, in Mexico it's very clear that people are having conversations with their deceased loved ones, and you tried it. Is there something comparable that happens in Nepal where they're actually talking to their uh, ancestors or parents or loved ones or brothers or sisters who are, who are gone? They might talk to them. In the Nepal festival, it's quite fascinating. The focus is more on supporting those who've lost somebody. So the festival itself, it's called Gaijata, which means cow festival. And for the past few hundred years, it's been overtly a festival to celebrate the dead. So essentially, everybody who's lost somebody that year joins this huge parade in the street. So what you would see is people walking along the street with these huge decorated structures, basically to look like giant people, women wearing saris and things kind of to symbolize the person who's died. You would see men cross-dressing. I have no idea why, and neither did anyone I ask. It's just part of the day. And you would see people dancing through the streets with dicks that they were banging together in a sort of rhythmic, musical way. You would see people playing trumpet and drums. You would see bangles and beautiful dresses. Uh, you'd see water flying everywhere because water is free. Oh, and an awful lot of incense. You would see children, small children, dressed as little gods, clutching these fat cigars of incense, and you see plumes of it going into the sky.
and crowds, just so crowded. And even during like oppressive regimes, it was the one day a year where they were allowed to make fun of the government. And the effect that that has is that, you know, the main lie that grief tells you is that you're alone, right? You always feel so alone. You know, you can't possibly be. This has happened to everybody. And it's really hard to feel alone when you look out at a whole entire city of people who are going through the exact same thing as you and have gone through it this year. So that is for the people who are left, but it's also for the dead people because my guide told me that the worry is that if you, let's say your mother dies and her spirit is there and you're crying and crying and crying and he's going to think, well, I can't leave him. I can't go to heaven. I've got to stick around. And that means they don't get to go to heaven and it means you've got a ghost. So <laughs> the best thing for everyone is for you to find a way to, to be happy and supportive and show them that they can leave. And, and so the cows accomplish that for them? I don't get it. What do they do? <laughs> Let me explain about the cow. So it's literally a procession led by a cow, right? However, <laughs> lately cows haven't been as available, partly because now they have machines through their agriculture. So apparently now a boy dressed as a cow will do. So <laughs> they've always had this cow festival, but in the past few hundred years, it actually started... It was a few hundred years ago when the king's son died and the queen was totally inconsolable. And the king did that thing where he tried to make her smile and tried to make her laugh, you know, cheer up, love. And he offered a huge reward to anyone who could make her smile. Lots of different stories about how it happened, but everyone agrees that it was some sort of skit that was satirizing the rich that made her laugh. So when he saw that, he decreed from now on this is going to be a death festival and it's going to be funny and it's going to be joyful. So they basically took an already existing cow festival and made it for the dead. You know, a bereaved queen and the king is going to pay somebody or reward them for making her laugh. That sounds like a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, doesn't it? Well, it's amazing, isn't it, how stories kind of repeat themselves across time and across cultures. But, I mean, that sounds awful to me. Can you imagine being inconsolably sad and just all these well-meaning idiots are coming in just vomiting sunshine at you? It should be horrendous. Um, But it did work eventually. But I don't know. Maybe she just wanted them to shut up. I don't know. Well, okay. Um, You didn't have the language at your disposal, so that was a bit of a challenge. Um, Mm, did yeah. you did you feel like you there could have a comparable experience fitting in with their celebrations, with their cow, with their young boy dressed as a cow, whatever they were doing, the parade? I speak Spanish, I speak Italian, I speak French. I was able to, you know, knock down those language barriers in other places. In Nepal, the way I kind of got into it is, first of all, I had two amazing guides and they answered every stupid question I had and I just made sure to ask a lot of stupid questions. And by stupid questions, I mean looking at something where I feel like I could self-evidently see what was happening. And I would say, what's happening? And what they would describe would be nothing like what I'd imagined. So we went to Pashupatina, which is where they burn the bodies on the open pyres. Dead bodies, obviously. (laughs) Bodies that are already dead. Um, Thanks for the clarification. I thought, I, just in case, you know, um, and they were preparing a body to be burned. And I saw that they put the body off to the side and there was incense all around this person. And I said, why is there incense? And I thought, obviously, it's because it's to mask the smell of the dead body. And he said, it's to give the dead person the scent, to show them, you know, even though you're dead, we still love you. We still care about you. We still want your experience to be pleasant. And there was just so many examples of that, you know, like when they were shielding the body from view, I assume that was for us. That was for the people who had just turned up to watch. But no, they were protecting the dead person's dignity because you're burned without your clothes. So they were protecting their dignity before they were wrapped in the shroud that they'd be burned in. And I, it just made me laugh. I thought, this is incredible because every time I guess, I'm wrong. Because every time I guess, I see fear where there's only love. And, you know, I teach journalism now, and I always tell my students, do not be afraid to look stupid. It's actually really important that you look stupid so that they explain things more fully. It so happens that I have been to dozens and dozens of funerals in my day. And so seeing an embalmed body, it doesn't really phase me. It's not what I would choose to do on any given day. But when I see a mummy, 
I have a kind of a queasiness that is not fear. It's not anxiety. It's that I'm afraid I'm behaving like a tourist. And so if you take us to Sicily and to the catacombs there, and there are mummies lined up at the walls and people, I don't know, I, I don't know if admission is free or if you have to pay to get in, but um, this is kind of, this is beyond macabre. This is people gawking, you know, at, at, at dead corpses. What do you, what do you, take us to Sicily and, and, and what did you see not only there in the catacombs, but how people behave there? Well, sure. I mean, let's examine this, this idea of gawking at a corpse. What's the problem with that? You're asking me. I mean, I know what you mean, but what is it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, we know it's bad. Because, I mean, there's a word we have here that I don't know if you guys use very much, which is ghoulish, and that means looking, but there's something kind of creepy and pejorative about the way that you're looking. So I think we have been taught to look away from death, and we have been taught that. Like, I can do a thought experiment with you right now, if you imagine there's a dead body in the woods and a group of people happen upon it, you know that if it's a group of adults, they will go, oh my goodness, and look away. But you know if it's children, they will go right up to it and poke it with a stick. Like, we all know that. So that means at some point between those two points, we've learned to be afraid. So the catacombs is really interesting. I'll be absolutely honest. I felt quite sick while I was there. It was, you know, it was hot and stuffy and it was creepy. They were not in good condition. So the way this started was because, well, first of all, Catholics think you have to be buried intact. And, of course, they run out of space. They run out of space quickly. So this was a status thing. We were very lucky if you were able to be dressed up and displayed in this way. Unfortunately, when your family couldn't afford your upkeep anymore, they did kind of deteriorate. So it is quite a frightening sight. Frightening because you and I have always been taught that skeletons equal death. Whereas in somewhere like New Orleans and voodoo, skeletons equals ancestors, and it's a nice thing. But what, what was striking about the catacombs is there really are just corpses hanging on the wall. And there's even a section where it's all children and babies. And I spent a few minutes in that section looking not actually at the babies, but I was just watching people come in. And 100% of people who came in reacted the exact same way. They all said in their own respective languages, oh no, oh dear. They were really upset by the dead children. And then they all went up to them and put their faces as close as they possibly could to have a look at them. Everyone did that, which I found really fascinating because I think it did frighten them at first, but then they thought, wait, I'm going to look. And none of them were still upset by the time they left. It was just a fascinating little social experiment, I suppose. But I did the exact same thing, by the way. I walked in, saw the dead babies and went, oh no, oh dear. And then I had a look. So is it macabre? Is it gawking? I mean, remember that these people, it was a status thing to be allowed up there. They wanted people to come and see them. They were dressed in clothes that frankly, if they were alive and they had a quick dry clean, they would still look really dashing. So <laughs> it was kind of a, you know, it's something they would have liked. You say in your book that adults who are racked with death anxiety uh, probably could be helped by either family or culture or society if that family culture or society would perform an important function for them. And presumably filling in that blank is some kind of death festival or something comparable to a death festival. I got the sense from you that society has kind of a, a duty to perform and oftentimes fails at doing it to help us with death. Yes, 100%. I mean, death festivals will mean different things to different cultures, as I found out. But this policy we have of only talking about it, only acknowledging it when we have to, is obviously irrational. There is no other difficult thing in the world where the policy is to only engage with it at your moment of highest trauma. You know, you know that if you're going to train for a marathon... You shouldn't wait until you've sprained your ankle. But that's what we do when it comes to death. And there's a lot of collateral damage that goes with that for the people themselves. For example, you've probably heard of people who don't want to see a dying loved one. And they say, oh, because I want to remember him as he was and things like that. And what has been found is that there are people who are dying who feel so abandoned I think one of them in, in one study said, I feel like I'm dead already. And that's 
such a violent thing to do to our loved ones. And it's because we're frightened of engaging with the fact that they're dying. We're essentially socially killing our loved ones because you do, you die a physical death, but you also die a social death, which I really realized in Indonesia where, you know, dead bodies are, you know, laying out and people are saying hi to them and bringing them food and talking to them because they're not dead until they've had their funeral. I should make it clear here, they embalm their dead in this part of Indonesia or this wouldn't be possible. So their social death happens a long time after their physical death which might be strange to us, but how am I supposed to explain to these people that we die our social deaths first because people are too frightened to deal with us? People are too frightened to visit us because they don't want to remember us as a dying person. There's just a lot more damage that goes along with this. You know, the damage is really far-reaching. So in Indonesia then, the positive thing that happens is that somebody may not have a funeral for what, weeks, months, years? Yes. And, 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 the, and the positive thing that happens is that um, the relationship remains intact, I guess, with the dead person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's be honest about the reason for that. In our society, when you die, you lose all your power, don't you? You can't do things when you're dead, is what a lot of people said. In Tana Taraja, which is a remote area of Indonesia where, um, where they still do this festival, and, in, and Madagascar, in fact, when you die... The belief is that you actually increase in power. Um, they don't pray to God. They pray to their ancestors. Hey, put in a good word for me with God and help me pass my exam. So they have a lot of power after they die. If you annoy them, they can make your crops fail. They can make you get sick. So you've got to keep them sweet. So there's that fear element. But also, the relationship is so intact. This woman who had been dead for four years, she had brand new clothes. And there were people running up to her, putting their phones in her dead face because there's someone on FaceTime who wants to see her. And I saw this woman going, oh, my God, hi. You know, she was so happy to see her again. You know, like lifting up the grandma and the granddad and putting them, you know, on the edge of a cliff where there was this nice view and posing with them. And, you know, I've got photos of them where for a second it just looks like an old couple on holiday. And then you sort of double take and go, oh, they're super dead. They're just very dead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's lovely and you know when they pick them up they say hey okay grandma we're just going to move you over there okay to take a picture of you with the view is that okay and there was this moment actually that I caught on video this girl was sat next to her grandmother she'd been dead four years and there was this moment where she was just looking out at the view and then she just noticed like a bit of dust in her hair and she just brushed it away just so casually and it was just I'd arrived at this festival thinking I was past the idea that a corpse is a scary thing But that moment just made me think, wow, I'd forgotten that it's just about love. That's all it is. It's just about love. And I actually shared that video on Twitter, expecting to have people shouting at me. But it was unbelievable, the reaction. The reaction was, wow, this is actually really beautiful. I wish I could see my grandma again and feel like I get to visit her every year. It was just incredibly moving and not at all spooky. It was lovely. And I just felt embarrassed and almost ashamed of the way we treat our dying here. And I was very glad no one asked me to tell them about it because I think they would have I think they would have thought we were terrible. But with our Western perspective, we would think that there's some kind of unhealthy mentally unhealthy denial going on there, right? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um denying that they're gone, I suppose. But see I think I and I fully expected that is what the chapter would be about, but I realized quite quickly that that was missing the point. You know, it's a belief that is absolutely no less valid than the belief that, you know, my mom's looking down at me from heaven. In a way, that could be denial then. But also, I think it's about this inconvenient fact of being human, which is that when someone dies, your love does not go anywhere. It sits inside you like a balloon. (laughs) There's just nothing you can do with it unless you live there, in which case there is something you can do with it. And, you know, I would imagine that they might say that we're kind of in denial that we think that when someone dies, that that's it. You're just stuck with this painful thing instead of actually being able to take care of them. I mean, this is a culture where rest in peace sounds absolutely barbaric. Like, what is wrong with you? You're just going to put them in the ground and forget about them. How could you? If you had never heard of either perspective, they would both sound completely valid. There is nothing more valid about, you know, grandma's looking down at me from heaven than grandma is, you know, going to make sure my cops don't fail this year. It's really about love. 
you know, it's about how it sticks around when somebody's gone. And there's just so many ways to respond to it. I guess that for me is, is the wonder, is knowing that across the world, all of us are exactly the same in the way we respond to something quite simple as we're around other people and we love other people. And when we die, we find our, our different ways to, to maintain a relationship with them. And also, I got hit in the head by a corpse. I mean, it was, it was kind of a crazy thing. You know? <laughs> that's, that's some awe right there. <laughs> that's a really strange thing to happen. But it's just because these people were being taken out of a tomb and danced around with just because even though they were gone, all anyone wants to do is just is see them again and spend time with them. And that's the wonder for me is that I found all of these places and cultures where they managed to spend time with their loved ones even though they were dead, something that we think is impossible, and it isn't. Erica Buist is author of This Party's Dead, Grief, Joy, and Spilled Rum at the World's Death Festivals. It's out now in paperback. Recently, I attended what was called a celebration of life in the place of a funeral. It did not feel like a funeral at all. And that's a phrase that has been cropping up, at least where I live. I don't know if you've heard it too, a celebration of life, marking the passing of a loved one in a different kind of way, not so constrained by tradition. I don't know, those old Victorian or maybe puritanical flavors of being suitably dreary and doleful. Actually, ever since the movie Coco, I have been rethinking my own very conventional expectations around funerary practices. And now with Erica Buist's help, I'm doing even more rethinking about it all. If you like what you're hearing on Constant Wonder, leave us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and a review. If you care to do that, it's going to help other people find us. This episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor with help from Daniel McDonald and Mamie Teeples. Sound design provided by Addie Mangum, Josh Cloward, Parker Schmidt, and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design Team. Our show is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Marcus Smith. Stick around for a little bit more on death observances. We have a fascinating little tidbit from history, 17th century Europe, a law that used to exist in places stipulating wool as the only permissible fabric for burial. And heavy fines could be imposed for non-compliance, no exceptions, but there were some pretty ingenious workarounds to beat the system. There often are. We're going to hear how people still manage to get their way on their final way. A Constant Wonder bonus segment coming right up. As our team began to engage with the topic of death festivals and rituals, and we were making arrangements for the previous conversation with Erica Buist, we also somehow got in contact with Victoria Finley. She's author of Fabric, The Hidden History of the Material World. So happens that Victoria Finley is another Brit. I kind of think that Erica Buist would readily approve of the way Finley looks death square on in her book about fabric, the whole issue of the place of fabric in contexts of um, funerals and mourning. And it's not just about cloth, as you're going to see, as my conversation with Finley included a little bit of talk about fly fishing rods, of all things. What what, what place might they have at, at anybody's funeral? What you're about to hear is just a little excerpt. The full conversation will be presented next week on our podcast, a complimentary bonus to everything you've heard here today. I have been to many, many funerals in my lifetime because I'm a musician, and I've been asked on multiple occasions to either play the organ or to accompany a choir or the singers, uh, soloists, what have you. I would estimate well over 200 funerals that I have been to. So I, I feel comfortable in that kind of a context. But I remember one funeral in particular that I went to. A young man, Vincent was his name. He was 14, had a heart condition that took his life. And as I walked past the open casket, I saw the satin fabric, and adjacent to his body were his fly fishing rod and his baseball cap, 
a, a softball, uh, the, the artifacts of his youth. And as I looked at that, I, this has been 40-plus years ago. I still remember uh, thinking that satin, that satin, it's doing something to that fishing rod. It's making that fishing rod really important. Does any of that make sense to you? Well, it completely does, Marcus. And actually, I went to the funeral of a friend, and he was he had a long illness. He was in his early 70s. My husband and I were really honored to be invited to help him and his wife plan the funeral ceremony when he heard that his illness, he wasn't going to be cured. And so 18 months ago, we'd sat and we talked about the kind of material things, because obviously this conversation really is about material, isn't it? Whether it's satin or fishing rods. And he said that he wanted to be cremated in something comfortable that would be something that he would have been comfortable wearing forever. He also, he was, he'd been working on farms all his life and he said that he hated cut flowers because they made him feel sad. So what he asked for was a wreath made of vegetables only and no flowers to be cut for him. And on the coffin was his fly fishing rod. I think in all of these things, you're right, it, it is very much what remains and how how does how can fabric and other things but how can fabrics make something elevate it to a different level some of this is just plain utilitarian a, a body can be clothed we 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 wear clothing in life we wear clothing at death you got to have the fabric because it's just a life thing that's ubiquitous i mean in 1666 in england there was a rule made that people could be buried only in wool. That means that they couldn't be buried in anything but wool. It wasn't like they had to have a woolen shroud and then they could be buried in their favourite clothes. No satin involved. They had to be naked in their shroud. And that was by law for a very long time. And the penalty for that was five pounds, which was a huge amount for an agricultural labourer. That would be two months' work. And sometimes people were paid two pounds fifty to report on you for not having been buried, or your family for not having been buried in wool. But the way that they do it, if they had some kind of money and they wanted to be buried in the things that had been important, what they did is one member of the family would report on the others, so then they would get back £2.50. So the net payment punishment for doing so was £2.50. But it, it seems so strange, doesn't it? It seems almost, it seems very wrong that you shouldn't be able to go in your own clothes. Somehow going naked to the next life seems more painful than going clothed, which is quite an interesting subject. The idea of moving from birth through life to death in the old mythologies, if you go back, oh, let's say to ancient Greece, well, I remember hearing about the spinning of the yarn or the string, and then somebody would snip it off. That was death. It's all very metaphorical. Well, I asked Victoria Finley about this, and she was very conversant with the stories of the ancient fates spinning the story of our lives, in essence, in Greek and Roman mythologies. But the story she was really taken with are the three spinners that show up in Viking mythology. They all sit under their ash tree, which is the sacred tree at the center of the universe, and they spin. And one of them is kind of representing the fiber that's destined to be thread. One is representing the fiber that is thread and is being made into thread. So it's the kind of the ongoing, our ongoing identity and the last one, she's not about cutting the thread. She's the spun thread, which is ready for the next stage. Somehow those three, the Viking three, just seem to be so much more optimistic about how the way we are in the world, we just go into different stages. There's the birth of the thread. There's the spinning of the thread, the actual process. We're spinning right now. So we were born, now we're spinning. And in the future we will die. Will we be cut or will we just be going to the next stage? I mean, I guess that's what faith communities are among the people who are struggling and questioning and reflecting on that important question. And for me, one of the reasons that I was excited about fabric, it seems to be a very good metaphor for that absolutely key question that we ask, which is, how do we live? 
and how do we die? There's nothing cut, we're just at the next stage. Well, we moderns don't necessarily adhere uh, you, you know, re- religiously to the old mythologies. And yet, these fabrics that adorn funerary rites, when I think of all the funerals I've been to, the very first fabric I ever see when I attend a funeral walking in uh, to the building is going to be either some kind of lace on a tablecloth or a doily. And this is just for the guest book when I'm arriving to sign my name. You know, the fabric is there right from the get-go. And I haven't even mentioned what I would be wearing myself. And I was going to say, in a way, your fabric experience of a funeral, one's fabric experience of a funeral starts in the morning when you when you think, what will I wear today? And obviously different communities have different traditions and they have different traditions at different times. I mean, my first book was called Colour and I was looking at different colours that were worn in mourning. I was remembering when I was in my early 20s and I went to live in Hong Kong and I went over to one of the islands and it was quite exciting. I was newly arrived. I had my camera and I saw these people and they looked absolutely wonderful. They were all dressed in white and there were flowers and there were chanting. Anyway, I took photographs and had I realised that it was a funeral and that white was a funeral colour in Hong Kong and in China, um, obviously I wouldn't have done that. So it was quite interesting that I didn't get, as somebody who hadn't been in Hong Kong or China before, I didn't get the signals, the visual signals that that was a funeral. In Persia, they used to, in ancient Persia, they used to wear clothes that were the colours of fallen leaves obvious symbolism. In Brittany, the widows used to wear yellow. I don't quite know why. And there was one tradition in Armenia where people who were in mourning, in heavy mourning, wore sky blue to symbolise where they believed the deceased was now living. If you'd like to enjoy more of this conversation with Victoria Finlay, Next week, tune into our podcast or visit our website, byuradio.org. We're going to be bringing you an extended version of this conversation. Among other things, Finley goes into the story of the seamless robe worn by Jesus at the crucifixion. She talks about what kind of symbolism might be entailed there. Fascinating tale of pagan Greek gods and the early spread of Christian belief throughout the Mediterranean region. Watch for this bonus material on the app and on the web. Victoria Finley, author of Fabric, The Hidden History of the Material World. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder.